0: Terry and I had a lot of fun practicing this morning, so I might need a little bit more water than normal, so thanks, Terry. Uh, Friends, this morning is Palm Sunday, and on Palm Sunday, we remember a special word, Hosanna. Hosanna means save us. Look at that teacher. Yep, save us. Save us now. Um, This is a passage that we come to every year because it marks the beginning of Holy Week. These are the last seven days that Jesus will spend on earth in his earthly ministry. So we'll have Palm Sunday today, or some call it Passion Sunday, as it begins the week of the Passion. Like Pastor Stephen said, this upcoming Friday we'll celebrate Good Friday and remember Jesus' crucifixion. And then, of course, one week from today is Easter Sunday. So this is a full week. It's a busy week for Jesus and for us as his faithful followers. And I'll admit that there's a temptation here in this passage because we know it so well. And the temptation is this. The temptation is to miss it. It's just to miss it. Because a week from today, we know it gets really good for us. So I would encourage you as you receive this text, when you feel that urge to jump ahead to Easter, that's all right. We're going to celebrate that together next week. But today we stay in Palm Sunday, traveling with Jesus to Jerusalem. Pray with me before we hear God's word. Lord, may your word be our rule. Your spirit, our teacher, and the glory of Christ, our utmost concern. Would you meet us as we meet with you? This we pray in your name. Amen. Friends, turn with me to Mark 11. Uh, This passage, Palm Sunday, is in four different places. It makes... uh, uh, an appearance in all four of the Gospels, but today we're going to take a look at Palm Sunday from the perspective of Mark. So we'll start in Mark 11, and it's verses one through eleven. So just one, 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 one. This is the easiest thing ever. Mark 11, verses one through eleven. Hear the word of the Lord and what it might speak to the church. They went out and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing, untying the colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with twelve. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Again, this is a very familiar story found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if I were to set up a whiteboard or something here in the front of the sanctuary and we were to look at each of those passages together from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would notice some similarities and differences between those four passages. But the similarity that you would see or the thread that you would see is this. Jesus says to two of his disciples, go get a colt or a donkey or a foal and a donkey." Untie that or find it and bring it to me. The disciples do that. Some of them are questioned about why it is that they are taking this coal, this donkey, this foal and donkey, depending on the version you're looking at. And they say, Our Lord needs it. And it's not questioned. The animal is then brought to Jesus. Jesus gets on the animal and people lay down cloaks. It's in John that we find out people are using palm branches, not just branches like we have in Mark 11. And as he is going into the city of Jerusalem, the people say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the main story the common thread between those four gospel texts. They're also really different, not alarmingly different, but what happens before the text and what happens after the text is quite different. In Matthew, Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem and he storms the temple and overturns all the tables. Do you remember that story? That's Matthew. Mark, we're looking at today. In Luke, Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem. He gets there. He sees that there is no peace, and he begins to weep for the city. That's Luke. In John, Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, and upon his arrival, people come to him, and they start asking him questions, and the Pharisees stand to the side, and they watch and wonder, what is this guy doing? He's disturbing the peace. And John then sets the stage for us going into Holy Week. Did you notice what happens in Mark when Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem? Jerusalem. In Mark, nothing happens. Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem. It's late. He looks around, and he goes back to Bethany, where he was at the beginning of the chapter. So it's interesting that there's this very triumphant, exciting, energizing entry into Jerusalem, and then... Nothing. Jesus leaves with the twelve. Now, we know, because we know this story, that Jesus doesn't leave forever. In fact, he comes back the next day, and that's where he has some fun flipping the temples and cursing a fig tree, and we on and on we go through Holy Week. But in our story today, nothing happens. Jesus enters the city, and nothing happens. I want to explore that nothingness with you this morning. Before Mark 11, Jesus and the disciples do a lot together. They see a lot. They grow a lot. Jesus feeds people. We remember the feeding of the 4,000, of the 5,000 in some gospels. Jesus heals many people blind people, lame people. Jesus performs miracles like walking on the water. And of course, Jesus does a lot of teaching. He teaches in parables and in other times he is more direct with the crowds and especially with the disciples. So there's a lot of momentum that's building and Mark. And Mark is a pretty quick, fast-paced writer, so sometimes we can miss that momentum, but he is building it, building it, building it, and building it. This is the king. He is bringing the kingdom of God, and it all comes to Mark 11, the entry into Jerusalem. But in addition to all of this momentum that's being built up, Jesus shares something troubling with his disciples three times, in Mark 8, in Mark 9, and in Mark 10. And it's interesting to sit with the disciples and see how they respond to this troubling news. Jesus tells them in Mark 8 that he is going to be handed over. He tells them that he is going to be persecuted, that he is going to suffer. And he tells him that, them that he will be crucified, that he will die, and that he will rise again. He tells them that in Mark 8. Again, he tells them in Mark 9. And in Mark 10, a few verses before we get to Mark 11, Jesus adds that this will happen in Jerusalem. He will be handed over, beaten, suffer, crucified, dead, risen again in Jerusalem. As they receive this troubling news and ponder what it might mean, Peter's reaction in Mark 8 is to say, "Um, I don't think so, Jesus. We're trying to get something going here, and it's hard to get this momentum going if you're telling people that you're going to die pretty soon. Um, So can can we share a different message? Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And I think that freaks the disciples out a little bit because when Jesus tells them again, that he is going to suffer, that he is going to die, that he is going to rise again, the disciples instead are afraid to ask Jesus any questions about it. So in Mark nine, they kind of sit back and they're like, well, okay. (laughs) And they don't question Jesus. But I think as this, as this news begins to uh, make its way into their mind and their heart, they start to realize that it might have some consequences for them too, not just for Jesus. So it's James and John in Mark 10 who pull Jesus aside after he tells them this is going to happen in Jerusalem. And they say, well, in glory, who's going to be on your left and who's going to be on your right? If this is our fate, I want to know where I stand with you, Jesus. So as we get to Mark 11, we're carrying the momentum of an early movement and we're carrying what we know to be true, that Jesus is going to this place to suffer and to die and hopefully to rise again. But that's crazy. In our text... Jesus invites two disciples to go and get a cult, and I wish that Mark had been walking with the disciples so he could record the conversation that was taking place between the two disciples. Like, are you going to untie it? Am I going to untie it? You know, this might kind of lead to something bad if we, if we do this. I wonder what that was like for them uh, to go and untie that cult and bring it back to Jesus. I wonder the anxiety or fear that they were carrying as they knew they were headed to the place where Jesus told them it was all going to take a turn for the worse. But then some symbols of hope happen in our story that build up the stamina again of the disciples. And the first is this. They get a cult, a small animal, a horse, a donkey. And they know from Zechariah 9, nine, that the one who goes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, that one is the king. That one could be the Messiah. So if we bring him this colt, maybe this will be true. Maybe he will suffer and die, but yes, rise again from the dead because he may be the Messiah, the coming king. I wonder if they ran that colt over to him. As they bring the cult to Jesus, they also see the way that the people respond. The people begin to take branches and cloaks, and they lay a path out for Jesus. And that's what the people did. That's what their ancestors did for King Jehu in Second Kings. This is, again, the sign of a king, the person who is coming to make all things right. For this persecuted people, this is good news. Suffering and dying? He's on our side. He's going to save us now. we learned that Hosanna does mean save us now. But if we didn't know that, I think most people would assume as we read this passage, because it's very exciting and feels a little bit like a parade, like a big celebration, that Hosanna might mean praise. Ah, awesome. Blessing. We've got this. Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Huzzah. Hosanna. That's not what it means. Hosanna. Hosanna. Save us now. Hosanna. Then it feels... A little less hopeful, having this guy riding a donkey into the city. Save us now. I think what's especially hard, perhaps for the disciples, is that Jesus leaves. He doesn't stay, in this moment, he doesn't stay in Jerusalem. He looks around. It's late. Perhaps there's still a couple people wandering about in the city. Hosanna, Hosanna. But Jesus leaves. As I notice that with you this morning, I feel the draw to Lent. I feel that draw to lament. I wish it could be better. Save us now. Save us now. It makes me wonder about that tension between the hosanna, between crying out, Hosanna, save us now, and God responding to that hosanna. We know God hears that cry. Because we know what's coming. Easter Sunday. Save us now? I will. On the cross. For you and for your sins. But these people aren't over here knowing that God hears. They're over here crying out, Hosanna. Hoping, please, let this man be the one who will save us now. I wonder if we were to take some time either now or later in conversation and talk about this text and this cry of Hosanna and God hearing, I wonder what Hosanna stories we would have. I wonder about the moments in your life where you have cried out, Hosanna, save me now, Hosanna. And about the times that you know, you've experienced, that God has heard. Not just because of what happened here, though this is really good and all-sufficient, but because there are other moments in your own life where God has heard and responded to that hosanna. And I'm sure that if we were to go around and share some hosanna stories, that there are some who are in that spot of crying out Hosanna and looking around and feeling like that man is gone. Hosanna, save us now. That's the tension that we might miss if we jump straight to Easter Sunday. We are a people who are heard by God, and we're also a people of deep hosannas. Save us now. One of um, the things that I can't help but notice in this passage, because so many of our middle and high school youth love animals, is the animal, the cult. Oh man, I think every week in youth group, we pray for at least one dog or guinea pig um, or duck or cat. We have prayed for horses in the past. I think we prayed for a cow once as well. Oh, we did. It was one of the Morn cows that we we prayed for. Um, But we love animals. We have a lot of animal lovers in youth group, which is really beautiful. So I noticed the cult. And I don't know if I would have noticed if not for working with and listening to the hosannas of teenagers, so I'm grateful for that as I read this text this morning. Earlier, I said if we were to take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and look at some of the similarities and differences, that a lot of the story would be very similar, and that's true. But there's one detail about the cult that is unique to Mark. It's only in Mark. It's not in the other gospels. It's just in Mark. And that's this. When Jesus gives the disciples instructions about what to do if somebody questions why they're taking this animal without permission, um, Jesus tells them to say that the Lord needs it and we'll bring it back shortly. And we'll bring it back shortly. It's only in Mark that Jesus promises that the cult will be returned. Now, that's probably pretty good news to whomever this cult belongs to. And my guess is the other gospel writers sort of assume that things turn out all right for this cult (laughs) or that it finds its way home uh, eventually. But only in Mark does Jesus say really clearly that he's going to take care of this cult and bring it back. Um, when he's done. So, as I notice then, because Jesus has made a promise to bring this cult back, I notice that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem and he looks around and it's kind of late, he has things that he knows he will do, things that he knows he needs to do, but he doesn't do them quite yet. And I wonder if part of that is because he knows he has to bring the cult back or that his disciples need to take the cult back. The cult is from Bethany, from Bethphage, and Jesus leaves that place to go back to Bethany. Mark doesn't tell us that he brings the cult back, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to imagine that Jesus did do that. That after this poor little cult which, by the way, um, when you look at pictures of Palm Sunday of Jesus sitting on the cult, it always looks very, like, majestic. But this is, like, a tiny colt, so his feet are probably, like, dragging on the floor <laughs> as this poor thing is taking him uh, to Jerusalem. This colt has been working really hard. It's a two-mile walk uh, for this colt with a full-grown man on its back. Jesus looks around, and he brings that colt home. where I see the comfort in that, for those of you who are crying Hosanna and maybe still waiting to hear from God, is that Jesus took a colt home. Okay, this is a horse, a young animal. If Jesus cares for a colt, if Jesus cares for the bird in the Psalms who makes a nest in the house of her God, if Jesus cares for the lilies and the grasses of the field and makes them beautiful and dancing, how much more? How much more does Jesus care for you? Does Jesus see you? Does Jesus long to bring you back with him? How amazing it is that even though there's a lot for Jesus to do this Holy Week, he still takes the time to do that. I received that as good news this morning. Because how much more does our God love you? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.